I'm grateful for an opportunity now to exposit Philippians 2. So if you have your Bible, please take out Philippians 2 as we continue our exposition in this wonderful epistle from the Apostle Paul. And if you're new with us, I've met a few uh, new folks. Um, we are so thankful that you're here and uh, hope that you already got a glimpse of what we take um, serious here, which is truth. Um, maybe this is uh, the first time you're in a church where so much emphasis is placed on doctrine, but just by way of reminder, I mean, doctrine uh, is not a scary word. It just means teaching. It's just teaching the truth. And so you see that in our articles. If you've been on our webpage, uh, you look there in our bulletin, uh, what you're going to find is doctrine, uh, not, not vagueness. Uh, we're not open to a lot of ideas. We just want to know what the Word of God says, because the Word of God is what transforms life. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and the people of God that really transform our lives. R.C. Sproul, he said, look, if doctrine doesn't matter, then truth doesn't matter. And so when you think about truth, um, we need truth, especially here in 2021. We have nothing apart from truth. In fact, in our grace group this last week, um, Brother Josh, we were talking about the names of Christ that stick out the most, and he just said, I just love that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that's our focus, and uh, as we talk more about doctrine, we've been uh, in Philippians 2, we've looked at these very, very important doctrines, these, these deep things of God as we think about the condescension of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and how Christ goes back up to sit at the Father's right hand. So lots of good, good theology, deep doctrine. And this morning we come to a passage of Scripture that elaborates on the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. Don't let that word scare you. To sanctify it just means to set apart. It's to set apart, to declare holy for God's service. And if we think back to even our article and what sanctification means, it's just a process by which the believer is more and more separated from sin and becomes more and more dedicated, devoted to Christ, to the standard of righteousness that God sets forth for us in the Word. And when we think about how these things work together, these, these big words, justification that we just recited and sanctification, we know that justification takes place first. Justification is what every Christian experiences at the start, the rebirth, the regeneration, the beginning of the Christian life. And then we know that glorification is what we long for. We even sang about that this morning. And all that time in between, which seems like a very, very slow process sometimes, it is a process that is sanctification. It's you and me becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what we, are, we long for. Our hearts long to be more like Christ. And so this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture that's all about sanctification. And it's a passage that has been misinterpreted, misused, and abused by many in the church. The questions that I'm looking to answer this morning as we come to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 are these how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Nick prayed for that this morning. When we think about salvation, is salvation a matter of just passive trust? Or is it a matter of active obedience? Is salvation something that 
God does at the beginning and then we just finish it all off? Or does God do the whole thing and we don't do anything? We just kind of passively let God work through us, flow through us, kind of that attitude of just let go and let God and he'll do the work through you. Is obedience something that we should actively seek daily? If it is something that we're actively seeking daily, then why does God get all the credit and God get all the glory if we're the ones that are actively being obedient? So those are the questions that I think Paul will answer just to these two verses. And these are some of the most important verses in the Bible for how human effort and divine sovereignty relate to one another in producing our obedience. Paul, what he does here with verse 12, he takes one of the strongest statements in all of the Scripture about the responsibility to obey, and he sets it right alongside that next verse, verse 13, which teaches us that God is sovereign over all of our obedience. So how do those two things work together? A lot of commentators have said great things about this verse. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of them, says, this is perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. So with that, let's read Philippians chapter 2, and I'm looking at verses 12, and we're just reading 12 and 13. This is what God's Word says. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning in a way where we see and delight and cherish your truth. Father, our normal inclinations, our natural understanding will not do us justice. We, we will not be able to comprehend and respond to this truth unless your Spirit is working mightily in us. So please give us that grace to hear, to heed, to obey this truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our outline for this morning is pretty simple. We're, again, just looking at these two verses. We're going to start uh, by looking at the context. Uh, because, again, when we talk about this passage being misinterpreted, it's often misinterpreted because it's taken in isolation. So we want to look at the context of the passage in verses 1 through 11. Just a brief summary. And then we'll look at the commendation there at the beginning of verse 12. And then we'll look at the command. And then, finally, we'll look at the confidence. Our main idea is this, that Paul, he is encouraging and exhorting us to work out our salvation by his divine power, that is God's, and by his sovereign enablement. Paul is encouraging and exhorting us to work out our salvation by the Father's divine power and his sovereign enablement. Here's the truth of what the Bible teaches. It teaches this, that you are 100% responsible to obey God and his word. That is without a shadow of a doubt. And yet at the same time, God is 100% sovereign in your obedience. And that's what these two passages teach. Let's begin with the context. As always, when you look at these words, they're important words. Paul begins with hoste. It, it means so then. It's like the word therefore. It forces us. It calls us to look back at what Paul has previously said and make the logical connection. So Paul brings this so then. And the question we asked, like we did last week, what's the therefore, therefore? We say, what is the so then, therefore? How far does this reach back? Is Paul going back to the great Christ hymn that we just looked at last week, the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 and 11? 
Is Paul going back even further to talk about Christ's humiliation there in verses 5 through 8? Or does it go back all the way to the beginning of the chapter? Chapter 2, about we are to pursue Christ-minded humility. This is how unity is maintained in the church. I think that this actually goes back even further to 127. Why don't you look there at chapter 1, verse 27. Again, we mentioned that this is the first command in the book of Philippians. It's the first imperative. And that imperative is this, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Immediately following that command, Paul launches into this need for unity at the beginning of chapter 2. Our unity is produced through humility and self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And the way that we maintain this unity and humility is giving what we call very thoughtful, conscientious, intentional consideration to who Christ is. Because we can't act like Christ and emulate Christ if we're not keeping our minds fixated on Christ. And so we talked about this, 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 this need to consider all that Christ is And that's what Paul does. He takes us down to the humiliation and then he shows us, look, that's not the end of the story. The humiliation ultimately ends up in the exaltation, which is exactly what the Old Testament promised. That the Son of Man, that the Son of God, yes, he would be a suffering servant, but one day God would vindicate him and raise him up and he bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And now, here's the logical connection. After all of that rich theology, after all of that Christology, Paul now says, so then, work out your salvation. Do you see the logical flow? Because Christ emptied himself, because he stooped unimaginably low to serve you and to serve me, because he suffered and sacrificed himself to make us eternally happy in him, Paul now says, so now you, respond to that. Respond to the theology. Respond to this high Christology and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, he wants us to experience this mountaintop experience of this high Christology, but it has a purpose. It's not to stay there. It's not just to sit and ponder it. It's to do something about it. And that is often the case with Paul in his letters. He gives us these these great glimpses of heaven, but he wants us to get to work after we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. These truths here are not only for meditation. They're here to motivate us, church, into action. And so the principle is this. Practical implications should always follow theological considerations. When I was young, I remember not being a believer, but going, um, they would say, up the mountain. And you would have these, what they would call mountaintop experiences. And some kids would not want to do what? They wouldn't want to come down the hill because they felt like they were actually meeting with God up on the mountain. And if you just trace all of the New Testament uh, timeline, you see people always going up to meet with God, Moses meeting with God, and Abraham going to meet with God. You even have Jesus up on the mountain with his three disciples. And if you think back with me to the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Peter seeing the awesomeness, the, the beauty, the majesty of Christ. And you remember what Peter says there? And it's Matthew 17. Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Do you see what Peter is communicating? He says, I want to just change my address and just, I want to set up a hammock and I want to stay here. There's no reason for us to go anywhere. This is the greatest thing ever. But yet Jesus walks down the mountain with his face set for Jerusalem because there's work to do. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us that the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. He says, truth leads to action and there is no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us to live in the valleys. And that is the aim of theology. It's not just for mental gymnastics. It's not just to spar with other people who disagree with us. No, the aim of theology is that it would motivate us. It would incentivize us. And it would equip us and empower us to live out the theology. So the way this works is we watch and wonder of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. We worship and then we work. That is the way it works. The commentator David Strain put it this way. He says, the question that Paul poses for us is whether we can dwell for long on Philippians 2, 6 through 11 and not find our hearts melting in love to Christ or burning in shame over sin or in flame with zeal to live for his glory. Fix Christ before your eyes, Paul is saying to us, and the sight of him ought to bring you to your knees and worship, penitence and praise and lift you up and send you out in obedience consecration, and service. In other words, we don't want to be like uh, what we learned from the epistle of James. We look at a mirror and we walk away and immediately we forget what we look like. No, no, we look in the mirror and as we behold Christ, we're being transformed into his image and we're becoming more and more like him. We need to respond to the theology that Paul has laid out for us in chapter 2. And so you say, well, what is that response? What, what are the practical implications as we consider Christ's humiliation and his exaltation and his glorification as he did all these things for us, became a servant, died on the cross, rose triumphant from the grave, ascended back to the right hand of the Father? What are we supposed to do with all that? Well, Paul says, so then. You see how just a few words carry such significance. So then. Because of all those things, Paul says now, walk in obedience. He's drawing a straight line from Christ's obedience to our obedience. But before Paul gives the command, he reminds the Philippians here, and he does it in two ways, and they're both by way of commendation. So let's look at point number two, the commendation in verse 12. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He begins, I love this, with beloved, agape toi mu. He's reaffirming, he's reaffirming his con, uh, affection for them. And he's already said in 1.8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all. 
And he just didn't say, I long for you all. He said, I long for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. As we've mentioned, just studying Philippians, Paul has this special relationship with these believers. He's their spiritual father. He's seen them grow up in the faith. He's got great love for them. And now he says, beloved, beloved. Uh, I stress that because it's important that we understand who he's talking to. When this often gets misinterpreted, it's because people don't realize who Paul is talking to. He is talking to Christians. But some have butchered this text because they don't pay attention to who he's addressing. And they isolate, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But if we don't pay attention to the fact that Paul is talking to believers, we walk away getting in all sorts of trouble. If he's talking to non-believers, then it makes perfect sense that what he's calling them to is a life of obedience so they can have salvation. And that is how some people interpret this. But he's talking to those that have already been saved, those who have already been adopted, who have already experienced new birth, regeneration. They're already the beloved. It is because, church, of our present relationship with God as beloved children that we pursue sanctification. You see, the relationship precedes the precept. If you go on and try to obey the precepts, try to obey the commands, obey the laws, without a relationship with God, you will fail every single time. Why? Because there is no power. Colossians 3.12 says this, So, as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, then comes the command. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It is torment. It is torture for you to hear, do this, be this, don't do this, but where's the power to do that? You need gospel power, spirit-empowered power. Relationship always precedes precept And so we fight sin, we pursue holiness because we have already been forgiven, because of our identity in Christ. That's where obedience comes from. So Paul, he reminds them that they're dearly beloved. He reminds them that this is the foundation for all of their previous obedience. Look at the second part of this. The second commendation is just as you've always obeyed. That word obeyed, hupa akuo. Hupo means to to come under, and akuo means to listen or to hear. And so this compound word, it's, it's used to describe that we are coming under a higher authority, and we're listening, and we are obeying. That's what the Philippians did. Because Paul showed up in Philippi, and he preached the word, and they listened, and they obeyed, and they repented, and they were baptized, And then they began to support Paul's missionary journeys. And they began to love one another. And so the Christ-likeness that was taking place in Philippians came as a result of their obedience to the word of God. And again, this is important to understand because it guards us from the air of thinking that obedience is an option. You do realize that there are some churches and some pastors and some ministries that underemphasize the need for obedience because they're all about grace. 
the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the compassion of God. And you say, Dom, what's wrong with that? Nothing. So long as you understand that all those things are meant for us to actually be obedient. People say things like, well, it doesn't matter how you live so long as you have faith. They equate obedience with legalism. They say things like, we're not under law, but we're under grace. And that's true, but it's not true in the way that they intend it to be true. They say you can have Jesus as your Savior, and then maybe sometime down the line as you mature, you make him your Lord. And you can't make Jesus your Lord. Jesus is Lord. The grace, church, that we receive from the Lord compels us to obey. It was of the utmost importance to the Lord Jesus himself. So you hear Jesus say this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? John 14, 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the Philippians, Paul says, look, from day one, you were obedient out of love to the Lord. Obedience. They love the Lord. They love Paul. They serve. They supported. They used their time, treasure, and talents. That was obedience. And Paul says, I commend you. Now, a sure sign that we have been justified is that we will obey Christ and we'll do it consistently. Notice I said we'll do it consistently, not perfectly, because that's why some people move away from this obedience because they know we can't do it perfectly. We know that, but God calls us to obey consistently. Look what Paul says there. He says, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This parenthetical thought is a great reminder that although we have maybe a a spiritual mother or a spiritual father or a disciple or a a pastor who has uh, been a, a father to us in the faith, we do not depend on them for our spiritual growth. It's helpful, we're thankful, we praise the Lord for them, but we cannot become dependent solely on them Interestingly, Moses has these very chilling words in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 27. He says this, For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I was still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And then Moses says, How much more than after my death? Moses is terrified that once he's gone, they're going to continue on in their rebellion. Paul doesn't say that. He says, I was with you, you obeyed. Now I'm gone, and look at how your obedience has skyrocketed. Their obedience wasn't dependent on Paul. Paul's ministry was instrumental. He was instrumental in them coming to faith. But Paul was not the reason for their salvation. He was not the reason for their spiritual growth. The new covenant promise is what? that God would put his own spirit in us, that he would cause us to obey. That's not a bad trade-off. I would love to have the Apostle Paul be my personal discipler, but guess what? I have Jesus himself. Isn't that beautiful? And all you do too, who are in Christ. And I want us to take note of that, especially parents, as we think about discipleship relationships we have a parent commissioning where, where we're reminding parents of their responsibility to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
It's just another helpful insight. The way that Paul does things is he commands for sure, but he commends. There's that beautiful mixture of both, and oftentimes he commends before he commands. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Let me just show you a couple places here where I think this could be helpful for us. If you disciple, if you have children, if you want to see Christ matured in the lives of younger believers, this is helpful. 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 11. We read this, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you, look, as a father would his own children. Exhortation. But exhortation always needs to have encouragement, needs to be balanced. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7. Verse 7 says, but we prove to be gentle among you. I love this. This is a man, the Apostle Paul. He's a manly man. And he says, how? How do we prove to be gentle among you? He says, as a nursing mother. Satomi is over here, and we've had her to our house uh, along with John, and we we see just the the preciousness of a mother with a child. Paul says, like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is the perfect example of both an exhorter and an encourager. And you say, well, what does he exhort and encourage toward? Well, one of the main things throughout his letters is sanctification. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says this, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. Okay? Here's the command. That you, that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and to please God. His exhortation is walk this way, Please God, but look what he says, just as you actually do walk. And now excel still more. It's a command, but it's a commendation that you are doing this. And praise the Lord for the grace in your life that you're doing this. Now, excel still more. He does that also about brotherly love there in verse 9. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but he says, but I urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And in both of those texts, Paul is always encouraging and commending. He's exhorting, and he's saying to excel still more. And it's only after the commendation comes the commandment. You say, well, okay, let's get to the commandment here, because that's, that's where the juice is of this passage. Well, what is the command? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Point number three, work out your salvation. That word, work out, it's a great Greek verb. Katergizomai is the word, and it means to produce. The idea is to accomplish something, to achieve something, to bring something about. And Paul uses this word several times just to give us a little picture of what this word means. In Romans 4.15, he says, for the law brings about wrath. Romans 7, 8 says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me coveting of every kind. Romans 5, 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance. Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians seven ten when he says this, 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, it produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, it produces death. All of those same words are the word that we have in our text. So this idea of working out, it is conveying bringing to completion, bringing about the end result, working the way to a conclusion. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's not saying establish your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying you have salvation now, work it out. Bring it to completion. God is the lone agent in saving us. And now, because we have a new heart and a new mind and a new will, a new desire to obey, we join him in living out the salvation that he's provided through grace, through faith. And an evidence, an evidence to know if you're truly saved, if you're truly a child of God, is to check your obedience. Are you demonstrating your salvation through your desire to obey God? Because faith always precedes obedience, but obedience always proceeds from faith. Or to say it another way, look, if you're, if you're genuinely saved, live like it. Live like it. It's going to manifest itself in trust. It's going to manifest itself in love and thankfulness. It's going to manifest itself with a life that is eager to obey. God did not save you, did not save me, just to sail our way to heaven. He didn't save us to slack off. He saved us by grace to obey. And that obedience is also a gift of grace. And we're to obey all that Christ commanded. Now, I don't know about you, but for a long time, I kind of thought of obedience as like a bad word, especially when I was a pagan and didn't want to submit to Christ. I didn't like rules. I didn't like laws. I didn't like to be told what to do. Like many of you, I was autonomous. I wanted to have my own way, do things in my own time. And so I looked at obedience kind of like as a bad word. And that's true of our own culture. We frown upon obedience. We don't want to listen to the man. We don't want to listen to the authorities. We certainly don't want to listen to the lordship of Christ in our culture. But I think one of the reasons why people dislike obedience so much is because all of the religions teach it. All of them do. All of them teach that you must abide by their precepts. Keep all their rules. If you want to be in a right relationship with a God, you need to do this, 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 and this. But Christianity, listen to this, is the only religion where obedience doesn't rest solely on human effort. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 8. Philippians 3 and verse 8. Paul was a very religious man, fastidious, he kept the letter of the law. And yet, what is Paul's conclusion? He says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own that is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, righteousness is not the byproduct of our own obedience. Obedient law-keeping, self-made, self-attained, self-ascribed righteousness, that is what religious people count on. You know what you and I point to? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is all him, all his work, and all the law-keeping, Paul says, was rubbish compared to the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And you have to remember that Paul's righteousness was not something that he produced on his own. It came from his union with Christ. He says that I'm found in him. He understood that it was not by works, but by faith. And so again, we return to this idea that the foundation of our Christian obedience rests in the fact that we are united to Christ. His perfect righteousness is ours. So Paul again says, work out that salvation. When I think about these commands, when I think about the Scripture and the way the Scriptures describe this, this need for us to be obedient, you come across words that sound difficult. Strive, work hard, labor. But you need to realize that it starts with believe. We're working hard. We're striving. We're laboring to believe God at his word. Because once the belief happens, once the faith is there, then the actions follow. The reason why you and I sin, it's not because sin is not fun. Of course sin is fun. That's why people do it. The way to fight it is not just to uh, clench your fist, white knuckle. Oh, I don't want it. I can't see it. I don't want to do it. You fight the sin with the greater pleasure, which means that you just believe God at his word, that he has something better that he has something more permanent, that he has something more satisfying. We don't obey to try to be accepted by God. Instead, our obedience is joyful obedience because of what God has done. Romans 6.17 says this, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed for those of you that have kids, we love when our kids are obedient, but we love even more when they're obedient from the heart. Because sometimes our kids are obedient. They don't want to be because you can see it all over their face. They don't want to listen to you. They don't want to do that, but they're going to do it because you're mom or because you're dad. So much better when they're obedient from the heart. It's the same with us. God desires that our obedience come out of gratitude and love and relationship. So as we pursue obedience, and that obedience works out our salvation, but you say, Dom, that really still sounds like Paul is saying that we have to work out our salvation. The question then has to be asked, well, what kind of salvation is he talking about? If we're really going to understand this text, you need to answer that question. Because Paul told the Philippian jailer, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response to him was, believe. But here he's saying, that salvation is something that needs to be worked out. And you have to ask the question, has Paul changed his mind? Is he now saying that we have to earn this salvation? 
If you have a, a pencil or a pen, you want to mark these down because you cannot forget these. Paul would never, ever say that we're justified by works. Look at Galatians 2.16. As clear as day, Paul says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not what? Justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then just to hammer it home, Paul hammers the nail in by saying this, since by no works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Since by works of the law, excuse me, no flesh will be justified. In Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, he says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. Uh, you keep going on and on, but let me show you this one. I don't think you can get clearer than this. In Titus chapter 3, the Bible reads, He saved us, that is Christ. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We entered into this relationship, and it's only by grace. Paul would never say that you need to work out your salvation like you need to get saved by your obedience. Which brings us to this, and this is just helpful as you think about salvation. Because when you see salvation in the Bible, there's all kinds of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The most helpful thing for you might be to realize that salvation happens in three tenses. You have a past salvation, you have a present salvation, and you have a future salvation. You say, Dom, what does what all that mean? Well, when we think about our past salvation, that means you have been already saved from the penalty of sin. God says, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We read about that. Justification, it is a single act. It is instantaneous. God declares you righteous in his eyes. There is no fear of judgment, of wrath, of hell. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Christ, who saved us, past tense, and called us, past tense, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity. There is a past salvation. If you are saved, raise your hand. It's done deal. You and I will be in glory. You don't lose your salvation. It is past done, sealed. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. But there's also a present salvation. You say, what do you mean? Well, from salvation from sin's power. This is sanctification. It is the ongoing rescue from sin. And it's the growth, it's the progression towards holiness. In the New Testament, sanctification is described in terms of becoming more Christ-like of imitating Christ, walking like Christ, looking like Christ, talking like Christ. That is sanctification. It's shorthand for a lifelong Christian obedience of being more like Jesus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 says this. Again, Christ, he, he gave himself for us. 
He redeemed us from every lawless deed. And why did he do that? Because Jesus wants to purify you. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. And it says, zealous for good deeds. Your life and my life, because we've been justified, because we experience past salvation, should be a continual progression of good deeds. Faithful, humble, dependent obedience that points to the greatness of the Savior. But there's also a future sanctification. You have the past justification. You have the present, our current sanctification. Then you have the future salvation, which is our glorification. Romans 13, 11 says this, Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. And he says this, For now salvation is nearer to us than we believed. What's he saying? He's not saying that you're going to get saved. What he's saying is that final salvation, when Christ finally returns and makes everything right, that is nearer to us than when we first were saved, when we first believed. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. But look at what he says. A second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. Christ is coming to rescue us fully and finally where we won't have to deal with sin anymore. Like you, you probably woke up this morning in temptation and temptation and temptation and sin already. There will be one day where there is no more because Christ will finally save us from this body of death. What Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 7. I have the desire to do it. I want to do it. I long to do it. But I find that sin still dwells in me. That will be done with when Christ returns. Praise God. Hallelujah for that. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, again, he's not referring to past tense salvation. He's referring to present day sanctification. Uh, look again at Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Having laid hold of what? This whole idea of the final reward, the final salvation, the final uh, being married to Christ. He says, I haven't had a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is just a great reminder as you go back to Philippians 1.6. Who began the good work in you? God did. And what's his promise to you? He will complete it. He will bring it to completion. Which leads me to this thought is, look, sanctification is hard. It takes work, but it is worthy work. Your life should be all about sanctification. This is why I go back to doctrine and theology. We need to know this truth because you're not going to be sanctified without truth. The New Testament talks about this idea of agonizing and wrestling and struggling. Paul even equates it to the Olympic Games. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Look, don't you know that all who run a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize? And then he says this, you're to run in such a way to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But Christian, we have an 
imperishable wreath. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so what you read in the New Testament is sanctification is a fight. Fight the good fight. Sanctification is a pursuit that we need to give our all to. Hebrews 12, 14 says, we are to pursue peace with all men. And then he adds this, and the sanctification which with no, without which no one will see the Lord. This is a race, not a sprint, but a marathon. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And you know the rest. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort, according to the commentator William Hendrickson. And if you don't like to work, you're going to be in trouble. Because the Christian life is work. Work that's reliant, dependent on God's grace. But it is work nonetheless. And that brings us to this reminder. That's why it's important that you're here. This is why you can't do church and not gather. You need to be sitting under the word. That's why we need to be singing the songs that we're singing with good theology These are God's common means of grace to bolster our faith and to help us in our work, to help us in our labor. We gather as a church, we fellowship, we practice with one another, we serve one another, we use our gifts. That is how we work. We work hard to love one another. And we're to pursue Christ's likeness and holiness. Lastly, what Paul says here, with fear and trembling. And just real quickly, this this is not grounded in a threat. That's not what Paul is saying here. You know this from Proverbs. Where does the beginning of wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One of my favorite verses, one of the passages that I want to actually have Brooklyn put together for me um, is this. But to this one I will look. Do you guys know this one? Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite and, do you know the rest? And trembles at my word. Love that verse. But it's like a lot of verses where you're jumping in in the middle and not looking at the context. So why don't you turn real quickly to Isaiah 66. Let me show you verse 1 and all of verse 2. Always the connection, the theology, the truth about God, his character, his nature, and how we're to respond. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, his self-revelation of who he is. Look what he says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? And then he says in verse 2, for my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being. He says, I'm Yahweh. I'm the creator of all, the omnipotent, the sovereign, the only Lord. It's because of the theology of who he is 
Now we read in verse 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Listen, we tremble at God and his word because he's so magnificent, isn't he? He's so awe-inspiring. That's the kind of fear. It's awe. It's this God, this Jesus, the pre-existent, glorious king of the universe, came to this earth. He became a man. He suffered. He died. And he did that for me. This God, this God did that for me. And the response is, now, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Live like this stuff matters. Don't avoid obedience. Don't just lean all on grace. Lean on grace to obey every single one of my commands. And next week, we'll see God's sovereignty in our obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we, we marvel at the, the sheer weight and reality of your glory. It is weighty beyond compare. We agree with Johannes Brenz, the contemporary there of Martin Luther, who said, the Son of God, who is at the right hand of the Father, and before whom all must bow, is always present with us. This ought to cause fear. It ought to become, we ought to become frightened and tremble lest any of us do something shameful or unworthy in your presence. Nothing is of more use in exciting piety in us than the thought that we are always standing before the illustrious majesty of Christ, who has been endowed with both heaven and earth, and who is always invisibly present. Lord, we know that you are here with us even today. And Father, when we know that you're here and you're watching and you see, uh, we are on our best behavior and want to please you and obey you in everything. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the faith, the eyes to see that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, whether in public or private, you know all and see all. And knowing that there is such a glorious and beautiful God who is there, I pray that we would respond in faith and obedience. Father, cause this church, Grace Church Monterey Bay, cause all of the believers here to individually and collectively work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.